Hi, this is Samantha, and you're listening to the Layman's Doctor podcast, where we're bringing medicine home. Today, we're going to talk about residency in Jamaica. Yes, I know I have a lot of podcasts talking about going to the UK, going to the States, going to Canada. But today, we're going to focus on what is the residency application process like. And this one is going to be geared towards persons who did SHO or internship and SHO at the University Hospital of the West Indies um, because there might just be a little bit of differences for persons in the public health sector. But don't worry, of course, I'm going to have one for persons who are in the public system and would like to stay in this public system while they are completing their residency in Jamaica. Now, this plays a part or is a part of a newer series that I have going on where I talk a bit more about the residency programs available here in Jamaica, how to build your profile, how to choose your residencies. And this is aimed at persons, doctors in Jamaica and all over the Caribbean who want to study here and want to even become senior residents and consultants or even start their practices here in Jamaica or just do their DM training here and then deciding to do something else. So in this convo, I have Dr. Cesar Samuels with me who is, well, he was in my year, 2K19, and he is now a resident at the University Hospital of the West Indies. And he's just going to tell us about the process and how he applied for the residency program and became a successful applicant. Hi, everybody. I'm Cesar. Um, yeah, as Samantha said, I'm a member of class of 2K19. Um, outside of being a resident, I spend time doing other things, can take picture and write things but with regards to the residence application process it's simple but also complicated meaning that unfortunately the office of postgraduate studies doesn't necessarily release a official bulletin for when applications open or when they officially close so usually applications open in december I can't tell you when in December it opens, but what I did, I went on the SAS portal, the same thing that we used to apply to undergrad. And I just refresh every day to see if the postgraduate degrees for medicine and surgery were open. And at which time you do the same thing. You put in the information, you update you know, your age and your occupational status, where you work, what you've done, and blah, blah, blah. The official deadline for the application is definitely December 31st. In terms of your references, to submit them, you have until about March. All right. So there is an office dedicated to postgraduate studies. And I know for sure that information about each DM program is available online on the university website. I will link that in the show notes below for sure. I don't know, for some reason, I did not think that application was done through SAS, but that completely makes sense now. And if we know that the deadline is definitely December 31st, that means if you are intending to apply for the program, that this is something that you should maybe have decided 
at least by November so that you can start the application process. Before we talk about the references, when you apply, apart from updating your personal details and your employment status, is there anything else you need? Do you need to write a personal statement? Do you have to upload things to say that you've completed internship or SHO? Are there any documents that you need while you're applying? Well, so you don't need another personal statement. So apart from when we did undergrad, that's the only time you need a personal statement. You do, however, have to indicate that you've done internship and SHO or outline how long you've been working for. In addition to that, you will not need a transcript if you are a UE-trained undergrad doctor. So if you've gone to one campus, Cave Hill or St. Augustine, you don't need to upload a transcript because the system already has your file. If you are international or from another university, obviously you have to transfer your transcript from that institution to ours. In addition to that, if you're married, you have to upload a marriage certificate. Other documents, they'll outline to you what exactly you need. I can't remember all of them right now, but they weren't really significant per se. The only ones that are really, really significant were the references. Okay. So basically, you can see the items and get them quickly without really any huge preparation. Yeah. So once you put in which program you want to apply for, it will automatically tell you what you need to drop off. But... In practical sense, even at the Office of Postgraduate Studies, what they really want from you is the references. Because that will set you apart and, and then the board can decide who they want to interview. So off topic a little bit, is it the same user ID number? As in your... your from undergrad, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's the same ID number. What I did, I still use my Gmail account. So I use my Gmail account to log into that original SAS portal for applications. But okay. once you put in your ID number, it will automatically upload to your profile to say that this undergrad person is now postgrad and wants to apply. Okay, so you mean you mean put in your name, like your personal details? Yeah, your personal details. Once everything okay. matches up, then everything is, is updated okay. automatically. Well, luckily for me, it's been years, but I still remember my ID number. like offhand all right so application seems easy enough basically from december 1st just keep refreshing the portal until it opens or you can call call and call the office and then they'll respond but don't wait until december 30th yeah don't wait until december 30th all right, so let's go straight into references. That is what is going to set you apart. That is what's going to help you get in. But you know you never tell the people what you're studying, what you're resident in, and purpose of oh. the you know. Oh, yeah, forget mm-hmm. about that. Yeah, yeah, so, so I'm a neurosurgery resident. I'm currently in my first year of the Doctor of Medicine program in surgery. Currently on general surgery rotation, and then I hope to sit my part one exams in 2023, May. Okay, how many years neurosurgery is, if you pass <laughs> everything, don't take any gap years, no breaks, you just put your head down, you don't get married, you don't have kids, you just put your head down and just do it, one year after each other. Six years. Six years, okay. Yeah. 
Six years is neurosurgery. Cardiothoracic surgery is about six or seven years. General surgery is five years. Urology, five years. Uh, pediatric surgery, five years. Orthopedics, six years. So you realize that these are big decisions because, I mean, you're basically going back through med school. And we're going to talk a little bit about how he chose his specialty and um, some tips and suggestions he would make. And one of the reasons why I did ask Cesar to do it, other than the fact that he is a UE intern, SHO, and no resident, so he can give that context, is the fact that basically from your notes, are you know, he was going to do something in surgery. And then even before applying, um, you know, you talked a lot about your passion and your like for neurosurgery and so on and even now as a resident you can really see that you chose a specialty that you care about and that you really want to do and you know you you saw what you wanted and you went for it and i think there's a there's some value in that that can be passed on so references how many references did you need all right so here's a confusing bit now so officially, there is four. You need two academic references, meaning that they must come from people who you have worked with at a hospital, right? Um, and then they, then they have two general references that can be anyone that they know, your, your mentor, teacher, lecturer, somebody who knows your bank manager, like a regular thing. Um, Funny enough, what I realized after submitting my documents was that I only needed the academic references. Um, but they also said that the general references do not hurt. They actually help. So in terms of choosing um, my academic references, there are some things that, that people have to know. One, each specialty has a specialty board that you will go before in the interview. Right, and what I think is key is that you should have, you should know who's on the specialty board for your intended specialty, and work with them, so that they know you, they know your work ethic, they they know your baseline level of knowledge, and you know, basically let them know or let them feel that they they can work with you and let them feel that they can trust you. That's very important. So. My my one of my references was from the boss, the SMO the hospital, my neurosurgery boss. You know, I worked with him for four months straight. I worked with him before as a medical student, did electives with him. So he was very familiar with me. And you know, I approached him, you know, after a case and I said, Sir, would you be willing to be my reference for my application? You know, she said he said sure. And, you know, he said to me that my reference would reflect how I did in the last four months of being an SHO, which is also, we'll talk about it soon. And then my other reference was actually a general surgeon who also works at the university hospital. He would also be my mentor as well since third year. So he knew me as well. So it wasn't hard to get those two references because those people knew me from before, worked with me before, the life I work ethic. And, you know, they would want me to be a surgeon. You know, the other two general references, one is also a mentor 
Um, I've worked with them in terms of volunteer work. We've done like tree planting projects, health fairs, and stuff like that. And then my other general reference was actually a doctor as well, works at UE. Was a person that I did a lot of work with. Just not in my attended specialty, but I just worked with him a lot. And I decided to ask him. I also oh, had a third one as well. Um, as I met my mentor from when I was in high school. The woman was an old boy, knows me really well, you know, and it was a good reference. But the qualities, I think, of a good reference, one, you know, somebody who's in the field, um, whether in a specific specialty or related, so neurosurgery, general surgery, one of them has to be on the specialty board as well. The next thing, though, that person has to be like, have some kind of connection, you know, the good network. So that if somebody calls them and asks, you know, hey, what do you think about Samantha? What do you think about Cesar? And that person is able to give you, give like a comprehensive overview of what you're like as a person, like a character reference. And none of these persons should be asked to do this reference for you in a rush, you know, because they might leave out things and, might, you know, they might not give as much details as possible to make you look as good as you are. So... For persons who may not have access, I'm going to use that word, to persons on the specialty board, I think the second point that you made is important. Someone, not necessarily the the connection part, but has knowledge of what they're looking for. So maybe they, you know, these consultants are all over the place and in all regions. So they know what persons are looking for when they're looking for a DM candidate and they know what to write in your reference letter and because if you're in a different parish and or you don't have again access to on the board consultants you might feel a little bit saddened or um, discouraged but there's no reason for that because when you see dm residents you'll realize that they come from all over the country and all over the caribbean And it is very possible to not have this. You just need to get your references, your academic references from persons who are going to write what they're looking for, write a good reference letter for you and really sell to the board that you cannot live without this candidate or you would be a fool to say no to this candidate, right? That's correct. Additionally as well, what can make you look even better as a candidate? One, when you finish internship and deciding what you're going to do as your senior house officer year, I think what's important, you put your first and second choice specialties in the first two blocks of the year. Reason being, you want to get a feel of those specialties right off the bat so that once you decide, you have enough time to apply in December time. What I did, I did neurosurgery first as, as a senior house officer. So I got a good pretty decent exposure to everything. You know, emergencies, multidisciplinary meetings, conferences, talking to people from all over the world. Just to cement in my mind, you know, that is what still what I want to do. And then, you know, once you decide that you're willing to take up this level of commitment, then you can apply right off the bat. And I think that the commitment aspect is what a lot of people uh, forget about. 
or you know the glamour of being a surgeon and whatnot kind of masks the stuff you have to endure in the time period as a resident you know they say yeah i'm gonna become a neurosurgeon in the six years but some people don't even think about what they have to go through in the first two years because the first two years is probably the hardest you know because just like in med school the first year was a big shock to you like the gap in knowledge between cape and first year med school is the same gap times like a hundred thousand where the gap between a final year medical student and what is expected of a first and second year resident is huge. And, you know, there's a lot of stress you have to endure just to, one, go to work, you know, take care of the patient, and also find time to study. Whereas in med school, you know, you go to school, come home and study. You're not really thinking about other people's lives in your hand. And then you have to factor in, you know, duties, ward call, you know, things you don't get paid for and all that jazz. Well, it's just part of the process that you have to be mentally prepared for, to accept, to endure, with the mindset that you know when you finish this program, you know, you know, you get what you wanted, which is to become, you know, you know, consultant, neurosurgeon, consultant, general surgeon, or whatever you want to be. So I just think people need to have that in mind that you have to be ready and willing to take on that level of commitment. Did you talk to other residents? to help you do you think that that's a valuable thing to do to speak to persons who are already in the program and maybe get their opinion on what it is like and what you should prepare for or are you of like the mindset that you know if this is something that you want sometimes people's opinions can really color your viewpoint or you know you should be careful who you ask opinions from yeah who asks as many people as you can get enough perspective from people who you call, you know, top man, top girl and whatnot. And you found who people think are the lowest of the lowest because everybody has different experiences. So you want to get as much information as you can before you start. One, one thing I always asked, how much you get paid? You get me? And what's the duties like? How are the ward rounds like? You know, general surgery has something called ward call. Which I think where you have to be available shouldn't should in case something happens on the ward. When you're not on duty, you have to be prepared for that as well. So I think it's crucial to before you start, you ask whoever who you think is like a like a model resident, ask them what it was like applying, how their first few rotations went, how they had time management, how they got the chance to study, how they got over the anxiety in terms of presenting to your chief resident. He got over the anxiety in terms of presenting a consultant, answering the questions, you know, dealing with the, the usual day-to-day aspects of, you know, hospital work. Because it's hard, you know. But, you know, getting perspective from those residents who are ahead of you, it actually does help a lot. Especially with, like, which books to read, which books to get. You know, how you can map out in your mind, how you can plan your study schedule. You know, and everybody who who I've asked have always told me you have to be very, very, very fluid. Meaning that you can have a your study schedule, but it has to be fluid to the point where like you go on a rough, rough rotation, you know, so you're not gonna have, have much time to study. So you tailor your, your, your study schedule or your topic list to make sure you get some work done. But because you're tired, it's like light topics that you can cover pretty well, pretty easily and get and grasp pretty fast. 
you can't tackle big topics on certain rotations because it's just going to be a waste of time. So I think that is beneficial. I mean, some people might be, you know, depressive and give you a lot of negative reviews, but it's really, at the end of the day, your responsibility is to take all that information, process it, and then decide what you want to do based on your values, your goals in life, and what you think you can handle based on what the, the information that they've given to you. Did you ask consultants for their perspective of the program? Do you think that they also add a valuable resource? Yeah. So I asked both my academic references their ideas of the program. I asked other consultants as well. A lot of times, I didn't even have to ask. You know, they would come to me and ask me, you know, have I applied what I want to do? And then I tell them, and, and then they just go off and just start telling me what their experience was when they were resident. And obviously, back in their time, it's a different time, you know. We never had WhatsApp. We never have certain, certain things. At our, we never have certain things at our disposal. So, you know, their experience would be a little bit worse than ours, you know, because they will probably have to be around a lot more because there's no WhatsApp. You can't just message just like that. You have, to, you have a page. If you get a page, you have to go because you don't know what it is. You get me? But the drawback to that that everybody mentions is that because there's WhatsApp, you know, people assume that you're available 24-7 when that's not the case. So they always say you have to set boundaries from early. So to know that once you're off, you're off. You get me? Once you're on, you're on. And don't just assume that, you know, they can call their message at 1 o'clock in the morning and then you're available just like that. But if you're on duty, you are on duty and you must be available for that 24-hour period. Of course. Um, you're on call. So yeah. I want to ask, how did you decide that this was a specialty that you wanted to do and what persons can look out for to help them decide what specialty they'd like to, to be a part of or to study. All right. So my desire to become a neurosurgeon, I have a lot of reasons. The first one, you know, I was a child. You know, grandmother get get shot in her spine. And, you know, the doctor them tell, me, tell my mother, and I just hear listening as a little youth here say she got shot in her spine, she can't walk. And I say, oh, that makes sense. That makes sense because she has two foot and she never got shot in her, in her foot then. You get me? Um, so that sparked like, a kind of curiosity. And I told my parents I went to the doctor just to figure it out. But over time growing up, you know, I was always fascinated with, you know, the control of the body from a, a nervous system perspective. But what really cemented it in terms of saying to me that, you know, this is definitely what I want to do. Where was it? I met Professor Crandon in first year med school. You know, well, before that, I had the idea that I wanted to do this, but I never, never had any experience with neurosurgery at that time. But I met Professor Crandon. He's one of the more senior neurosurgeons in the island. And we did a special study module and... The experience, you know, he let me scrub in and you know, did a couple of things. And you know, it, just, it just felt like I was at home. You get me? I felt like it was the best combination between science and art. And it's basically just poetry in motion, just beautiful surgery. You know, a lot of times people might think of neurosurgery as a very morbid specialty. But that's just, just because, you know, it's our overall health system has failed us. 
where you know things that you want to do for the patient's best interest, you can't really do it because resource limited. It's just a fact of life. But once you're doing or practicing, it for me it just feels at home. And even when, when I was a, a senior house officer, and other times I would get to scrub in and you know do burrow holes, do external ventricular drains get a chance to reset tumors. I just felt at home. It just felt very peaceful. I could be there for the entire day, two days straight. I just felt at home. There was no doubt in my mind that this is something I'd want to do as my career path. It's just that, you know, seeing seeing somebody come in with their neurological deficits, I know where to, where to find the lesion, you know what exactly to do. You fix the problem and then, you know, a couple weeks post up, the patient is at least 80% back to normal. And with physiotherapy, they go back to normal. It's just beautiful and very rewarding to see that mm-hmm. you know, they can do this for this person. And then, you know, you follow them up and they're quite fine. Added to that, in terms of the, the whole neurophysiology of the body, it's just beautiful. I just think out of every system in the body, the neurological system is probably the most beautiful and articulate of them all. And I would just want to work with it for the rest of my life. Tears. <laughs> okay, so just from hearing that, right, what I would suggest to listeners is to listen again. You can always rewind and listen to how he answered. And in the other podcasts or persons are talking about their residencies, I'm hoping to be talking to senior registrars and consultants about their specialties, is that it has a lot, again, to do with being honest about what it is that you like you heard him say it felt like home meaning that it felt like something that he actually liked for his own reasons that he enjoyed he also gave the answer this is something i can see myself doing for the rest of my life and then there's also this special interest because of what happened when he was younger you'll hear a lot of these principles and themes being repeated over and over again for many persons who are doing things that they enjoy and that they have kind of found their purpose for so a good thing in my opinion to look for is yes it might be hard yes it might be difficult and he definitely said that it's not it's not like he said it's easy and you know it's a bed of roses but when you're looking for things look for specialties that meet your needs they make you feel invigorated they make you feel excited they make you feel interested they also maybe give you the quality of life that you're looking for the amount of wealth that you're looking for the free time you're looking for and every decision is going to be a personal decision based on what you want to do some persons are going to find it by first year some persons may have to leave medicine re-enter medicine to find what they want some persons might know right at internship some persons may know at various points but i think it's very important that you do the due diligence and not jump into something that is at minimum four up to eight maybe even 12 years depending on what happens in your life and then at the end of it you really and truly don't enjoy what you're doing so we talked about how to apply because you were at UA did you have to ask for study leave or anything like that or for you it was just applying did you have to apply for a job at UA to be a resident there um what about 
getting a spot to work was that kind of automatic or did you have to do any special applications all right so it's not automatic um there's i never had to apply for the study leave i never is actually the first time i'm hearing about the study leave but i will tell you what um, my mentor said to me when i asked him about the program with applying to become a resident you're serving two masters one one application is to the university of the west indies right that's your academic application to join the residency program then you have another application which is to get a sponsored post that can either be at a university hospital of the west indies or any of the accredited teaching hospitals in in the island which can be kph spanish town and i think cornwall regional hospital well, i know for a fact kph and spanish are my ue right what a sponsored post means that you have a job right that is reserved for the program residents meaning that they will put aside money to pay you for the duration of their program right and for you residents in particular um, they will also cover the school fee for the residency program i'm not sure what it is like for the residents who are not from you i know their spots would be reserved but i'm not sure if they're sponsored meaning that i'm not sure if the hospital will pay for their school fee so basically say is that you have to apply to the university of the west indies to get a residency slot in the academic post and you also have to apply to whichever hospital for a sponsored residence post and those can only become available once usually once as once someone leaves the program whether it is they pass dm2 or if they exit the program for what other reasons which is why every year a lot of persons would be accepted into the program um, as residents but not a lot of people can start the program because they don't have a hospital post that's key to bear in mind i have a question that I'm, i'm not sure if you would know the answer to per se sure. but if you get accepted but there are no more posts for you is it like you know they're like okay we're just gonna defer you until next year yeah you get deferred until a, okay. a, a spot is available okay that's awesome that's good that's that's great to hear all right great so we've talked about a lot of things but i know the final thing i wanted us to touch on is that there is in fact an interview process where you go in front of the specialty board right yes yes okay what was that like and how do you suggest persons really shine in that interview okay so firstly look good look good you know get your hair cut get your hair done put on a nice suit dress blazer whatnot but it's a professional look clean cut all the works the interviews now since the pandemic have been via zoom so people only really seen you from like the mid chest go up what i can say for the interview process itself i had three consultants from the specialty board and what i can say after that is you can rehearse a lot for these interviews but they may not help the rehearsals may not help and you also have to be very honest because 
they know a lot about you enough to actually tell you word for word you know what you failed what you've repeated which grade you get like the percentage and whatnot they know a lot about you a lot more than you think they would know and you know expect a lot of philosophical questions don't expect any clinical question they won't ask you how you manage a case your main goal in the interview is to show your integrity as a person and let them feel that the program itself and they would benefit from having you as their junior so you know right after that my first question in the interview was you know why neurosurgery and you would have heard me give the reasons as to why neurosurgery the next question i got was from professor crandon they showed me my transcript you know, they went through from first year, come straight down to final MBBS. And, you know, he highlighted the fact that I got honors in medicine. And his question was, so why surgery and not medicine? And then, you know, Dr. Bruce, he asked me, what are my values? You know, what makes a good surgeon a good surgeon? Or key is what are the values and mission statements of the hospital or the values and mission statements of the university. And these are things that they probably don't expect like, the average person to know. But it's also part of the fact that you, you should probably know some of your consultants, how they behave on an interpersonal basis with you know the residents and stuff and things that they usually ask. But they tend to in the interviews they will ask you more philosophical questions, how you feel about things and how you would handle like a dispute between you know, doctors, dispute between doctors and nurses, how you would arbitrate an issue between nurses and nurses, med students and nurses, and stuff like that. And what you should also know is what are the new developing aspects of your intended specialty? What are the different subspecialties, the fellowship programs that are offered internationally? Because that was also one of my questions. They said, you know, Dr. Samuels, um, are you aware of any well, subspecialty fellowships that are offered in neurosurgery. And obviously, if you don't know that, you know, that would let me suffer because how could you want to do neurosurgery and not know, you know, stereotactic neurosurgery, endovascular surgery, skull-based, cerebrovascular tumor, stuff like that. You know, if you don't know that, then basically we should even talk about you. And then also have some research ongoing or intended research because they will ask, you know, what things are you, are you looking to publish in, in a few years? You don't necessarily have to have anything published before the interview, but that could also help. But how's things intended to start or are they started so that you can publish while you're a resident? I think those are key. But also keep the, the interview lighthearted. Don't sound like a robot. Try to sound like it's a regular conversation you're having between colleagues. They don't want a robot. They don't want a yes man. What they want is somebody who they can trust, somebody who they think can think for themselves. And, you know, at the end of the day, somebody who, when they leave work or do a case, they can go have a drink with. As simple as that. Okay. And there's no exam. There's no exam. Why is that so strong? Do people <laughs> no, think no, that there's I, an exam? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I've been asked several times, you know. Is there an exam to become a resident in, in Jamaica? 
That's a well, no. Technically, no. The biggest the biggest exam you have to become a resident is basically MEBS, and your transcript in med school. Mm-hmm. But the the most important thing outside all those exams is actually the interview process. Mm-hmm. And once you ace the interview, then you'll be shortlisted and ranked. And based on how many people they can accept per year, you may or may not be accepted. Fortunately mm-hmm. for for our for my year, there were two candidates who they could accept, myself and another person. Sometimes it's one person, you know. So also we should do research the acceptance rates um, per year for specialties, how many people they accept, uh, when people get deferred, who gets posts and all that guys. When you say research, because you're making it sound like these things are published data. Is it published you or you mean like, because you said research, how many people usually get accepted? Is it a go oh, yeah, yeah. and ask people um, or is it published, yeah, yeah. you know? Oh, it, it's not published. It's not published. Yeah. If anybody is listening that does residency programs and does these things, this is something to consider actually publishing your data and your acceptance rate. And, you know, when you start and having a more streamlined process um, so that persons don't miss out and there's more knowledge around actually becoming a PM candidate at the university. You never know who listening, right? True, true. But yeah, I I just walked around and asked, you know, you know how many people get how many people get accepted per year, mm-hmm. and the usual answer most times for neurosurgery is one or two, but yeah. for others I'm not sure what the, what the acceptance rate is for the other specialties. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much. I know that we I had said that I wanted to ask about how you build a profile, but I think you gave a very succinct answer throughout the entire interview. Um, you know, just being present, knowing what you want to do, going after it. The tip about doing it as a senior house officer early is really huge because December is in your second rotation as a senior house officer. And if you want to do neurosurgery, but neurosurgery is your last rotation, boy, maybe you have to defer it until next year or so, so you can increase your competitive edge to the application and you know choose your references well be present show interest and i'm realizing the more and more i talk about these things a lot of the themes are the same and there's not just one way once you're hitting the theme and the the general points you should be okay this podcast is definitely going to be coming after my podcast with dr mullins who spoke about the residency program for ENT. And if you listen to that, you would know that he at no point had actually rotated through ENT, but got in right after SHO. And the way that he did that was really by showing interest, being present and making the proper connections needed and relationships needed so that he would be a competitive candidate. So as I say, where there's a will, there's a way, right? Yes, ma'am. Thank you so much, Cesar, for being a part of this and for being so eager to share with me and my audience how your application process was. And hopefully for persons listening to this, it will help them in the upcoming... I mean, they have a year. This is coming out in probably February. Um, They have a year 
or so to really plan their action plan to doing their residency program and becoming a competitive candidate. Of course, we always have a part where you can share about yourself. If you want persons to follow you, where they can find you. You spoke about your photography. If you have a page for that and you want persons to check it out, this is your section <laughs> where you can do that. So if we want to reach out to you or find you, where can we do that? Well, you can find me on Twitter. My handle is Cesar OF. That's S-C-I-Z-A-R capital O-F. And you can find me on Instagram at S-C-I-Z-O-F. And yeah, you can ask me any question. I don't mind. I may or may not answer quickly, but I'll give you an answer. Just send him a DM, right? Yeah, I won't, I won't <laughs> leave you guys unread. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much for being a part of this conversation. And if you would like to reach out to me, you can send me an email at samantha at the com. You can also use my contact sheet on the website, www.thelaymansdoctor.com. You can find me on Instagram and on Twitter at thelaymansdr. And you can send me a DM there as well. We have podcasts twice a month, every second and fourth Sunday. And I really hope you enjoyed this conversation. Until next time. I want to ask, how did you decide that this was a specialty that you wanted to do? But I'd like you to answer in a way that your dog is so distracted. I'm so I'm so sorry. <laughs> I know my sister going to put that part in where I laugh out, you know, Jesus.